Well, good morning. Happy Easter. <laughs> this is a little better. You actually, believe it or not, that was a little better than last night. You'd think people that go to church at five in the afternoon would be a little more awake than we had last night. I mean, I had to remind them to tell their face that it was Easter. I mean, it was crazy last night. I mean, I could even see their face with the mask, yet it just felt down. But I can see some of you are very cerebral this morning, so that's exciting. But, uh, well, welcome. It's so great to see everybody. My name is Ryan. If you're a guest, if you're tuning in online, if you're out in the atrium, if you're here in the room, and this maybe is your first time, my name is Ryan, the lead pastor here at Crossroads. It is great to be together on Easter here in the building. You know, it took 18 months for it to happen, but I'm actually having Crossroads. I'm actually having Easter at Crossroads. So, so like, uh, I, I realized that. I had Easter with Crossroads last year. It was all video, uh, but this is my first Easter at Crossroads and with Crossroads. So it is so nice to see people uh, this Easter. So thanks for being here today. We're launching a brand new series today called A Case of Mistaken Identity. If you're a talk note, fill in the blank kind of person as you came in, those uh, programs have a fill in the blank sheet you're welcome to use if you want to have hope that it will end. Uh, but it will end because we have a whole bunch of people coming in in a little bit. So you can be assured of that. But uh, we're talking about mistaken identity. Have you ever been a victim of mistaken identity, right? And here's how this looks uh, in, in its most innocent, humbling form. Uh, you're standing somewhere, and, and someone catches your eye, and they're waving at you. And so you wave back, and only to realize that they were waving at the person behind you. Anybody ever have that happen to you, like that moment? And you realize, oh, I'm not loved, right? You're just like, I'm not known. I thought I was popular. I thought somebody was just waving at me. We have that moment, right? Another way that mistaken identity happens uh, is the old adage, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Have you ever experienced this, right? Uh, and it, literally, it comes from, like, you can't judge whether or not the inside of a book, what it looks like from the outside. But we experience this in all types of ways, right? Uh, you can experience this from the outside of a restaurant. You can experience from the outside of a store, whatever it might be. I experienced it I remember in my undergraduate work, there was a professor that I avoided like the plague. I just saw this person. He was in the Bible department and, I mean, looked older than Moses. I mean, it was just like, oh my gosh, this guy would be so boring. I had one conversation in passing with him in the hallway, and he just talked really slow and really soft. And I thought, I don't know how people make it three hours a week in class with this guy. So I avoided any class. Uh, I could always take it with somebody else. I took it. But then finally, in the second semester of my senior year, I had to take a course, and he was the only one teaching it. And so I had to take it, and I took it, and I was so ticked off because he was so good. <laughs> I mean, he was like literally one of the best professors I had ever had, and I only got to take him once because for two years, I just thought, this guy's got to be boring. Look at him, right? We do this all the time, right? Sometimes we do it from the recommendations of other people, right? Other people tell us, oh, don't eat there or don't take that class or don't talk to that person. And what do we do? We take their facts and we form our conclusions, right? We all do this. It's just a part of life. And sometimes we give people our facts and, and we'll start to do that. Maybe at work, you have a new person come in and you start to give them the lowdown all about everybody that you work with and you realize you're getting to somebody that you really don't have anything nice to say. And so you feel like, well, I probably shouldn't say anything nice. And you get to, you know, Joe or Sally, you're talking and you're like, oh, and that's, that's Sally over there. That's Joe over there. And you go, but I'll just let you form your own opinion. Right? You, you, people say that. And like, that's too late. Like, I know what you mean when you say that, right? Like, somebody's facts always, and here's the truth. Facts often cause us to avoid or miss the truth. Isn't that interesting? Like, our facts, the reality of someone else's experience, the way they interpret the world, the way they interpret an experience, but facts will often cause us to miss the truth. 
And I can't think of a, of a, of a more glaring uh, space that this happens than when it comes to issues of faith in God. And what I want to do today is just kind of explore a little bit of facts and truth in the account of the resurrection that we get in the Gospel of John. If you're brand new to Bible study or church, I'm so glad you're here. Um, This is a great space to do that because uh, I tend to think about the Scripture as a space where we find wisdom. I don't read Scripture as a rule book. Uh, I'm not into trying to follow the Bible. That is a very, very useless, futile mistake that a lot of people make because it is awfully big and there's a lot of things in there that we don't do. Even people that say they follow the Bible, which some of us would, like if we're honest, we don't. Like you all look great today in your cotton blend Easter outfits, which tells me you don't follow the Bible, right? Uh, Or you eat shellfish, okay? So we're here to to try and follow this Jesus that today we celebrate is living. And the the scripture helps us do that for sure. And so if if the Bible has been an instrument of really uh, of of trauma for you, you're in a safe space where we explore and look for wisdom. And so I want to just explore a few verses today as we jump into this idea of mistaken identity and how it relates to God, because we see the first instance of this incredible idea of we can actually mistake and misunderstand God right at the resurrection. So in John chapter 20, verse 1, this is what it says. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark and she saw the stone removed from the tomb. And that's weird. So she sees the stone rolled away, and she freaks out, and she runs back to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, uh, the writer of John likes to use this phrase, the disciple that Jesus loved. Nobody's really sure exactly which, which disciple they're talking about. A lot of people tend to think it's, the, the, it's John who the book's kind of gathered and written in their name, but it's kind of an interesting way. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny, actually. But So this disciple that Jesus loved, and she tells them they've taken the Lord from the tomb. We don't know where they put him. And I don't know who the we is here because John tells us it was just Mary, right? So Mary comes back. She's like, I don't know where, where he is. And what I want us to catch here is that Mary was just making sense of the moment with the facts that she had experienced. Like Mary was there when they killed Jesus. Like Jesus was dead. I mean, he was dead. Took him off the cross, buried. He was dead. She saw it firsthand. And so she's just, given what I know, given the facts, the only logical conclusion is somebody took Jesus. I mean, the stone was moved. Jesus is gone. Somebody took him. So it says, Peter and the other disciple, they went out and came to the tomb. And this is, again, funny, like, feels like it has nothing to do with the story, but like the author like puts it in there for us. It says, they both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter. <laughs> like only men would do something like this and then write it down, right? So they, they ran to the tomb, but the disciple Jesus loved was faster, okay? So that person gets there first, and he bends down, and he looks inside the tomb, and he sees the burial clothes there, but he didn't go in. He's a little chicken, a little scared. And so Simon Peter arrives after him, because he's a little wore out from the run. He's like, you know, it's like me trying to keep up with Mike Perez running, right? So Simon Peter shows up, but he goes into the tomb. So he's slower than the other disciple, but filled with a little bit more courage. He goes in, and he sees the burial clothes there, and the cloth that had covered Jesus' face, And it wasn't with the burial cross, but it had been rolled up in a separate place. So he goes in and it's like, like things are not as they should be. Forget that Jesus isn't there. He's like caught up in, why is that over there? And why is this over here? And so now that Peter's in there, the other disciple, the one who arrived at the tomb first, we just have to get that in there. The one who got there before Peter, because he was slow. He saw and believed. That's an interesting statement. It says he saw and believed, but this Like, what did he believe? But this next sentence gives us a real 
clue as to what these disciples believed. It says, they believed, for yet they did not understand. They didn't yet understand the scriptures that he had to rise from the dead, so the disciples returned home. So what is it that they believed? Well, if you read it too quickly, you'll gather, oh, well, they believed that Jesus was alive, but I don't think that's it at all. I think they actually believed Mary. I think the facts... Mary's facts, Mary's circumstances, they then experienced the same facts, and they believed Mary. He is gone. And so what do they do? They go home. Isn't that interesting? So, so they're like, I don't know. This can't be true. So they run out. They get there. They see exactly what Mary describes, and then they believe her. And so they're in the same situation. So they take off. They go back to their homes. It says, but here's what's fascinating. It says that Mary stayed so overwhelmed by the experiences. She just stayed outside and she was just weeping. She's just weeping. She's just lost in this reality for her. It says, as she wept, she bent over into the tomb and she saw two angels that were sitting in there. Now you'd think that this would change your mood, (laughs) but she doesn't realize they're angels. The writer wants us to think they're angels. The writer wants us to know they're angels, but she doesn't. She looks and she sees one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And this would be like where you'd start asking like really good questions, <laughs> right? But the two angels that weren't there, they're there now. Like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. But she's just, she's still in the facts of her situation. And she says, they've taken my Lord. They've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him. She's distraught. They don't know. She doesn't know where Jesus is. And I'm not, I don't think we ought to fault Mary for this. I don't think we can look down on Mary for this, because I think Mary came to the only reasonable conclusion based on the facts. She's just, she's stuck right in the facts. He's not here, and she's drawing these conclusions. Now, when she says this, she turned around, and the writer tells us she saw Jesus there, but didn't know it was Jesus. The facts were so overwhelming. Why would it be Jesus? And so Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Here's what's so fascinating. The text says she thought it was the gardener. I mean, here's Jesus right in front of her. And she's weeping, and she's so overwhelmed by the facts that she misses the truth. And and she thinks it's the gardener. And she says to Jesus, sir, if you carried him away... (laughs) If you carried him away, tell me where you laid him and I will take him. So what you see here is Mary saw what she expected to see, a gardener. The facts tell her, why would she even be looking for Jesus? So she sees the gardener. And all of a sudden, here's what's so powerful. Jesus says to her, Mary. That's all he says. This story is so beautifully crafted for us. It says, she just says, Mary. You ever been like in a bit of a tizzy? And, and somebody just looks at you just the right way and says your name, and it just, everything just kind of goes, whew. you take a breath. Like, don't need to say anything else. So much is said in that. And Jesus says her name, and she turns and she says to him, Rabboni, in Hebrew, which means teacher. Here's what I love about this. Mary knows all the facts. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus' body is gone. I don't know where Jesus is. Those are all the facts. But she learns the truth when she heard her name. She learned the truth when she heard her name. So as we think about this story and we think about life and we think about what does it mean to say that Jesus lives, 
What does it mean to ask the question, do you believe in God? Do you believe in the resurrection? All of these big questions. I don't want you to miss this because I think this is really the, the crux of it all. This is what we're talking about for the next four weeks. Is that there is this truth that what others have done with Jesus shapes our expectations and distorts the truth of God. The way in which other people have experienced Jesus, the way in which other people have interpreted the Bible, the way in which other people have taken their facts and applied it to Jesus, it shapes what we expect. How you grew up, whether you grew up in a community of faith, whether you didn't grow up in a community of faith, how that community of faith presented God, all of those things, they shape our expectations. And at the end of the day, we'll always distort the truth of God. It's happening right now. I, I mean, as much as I wish I could tell you that I was presenting to you the fullness and the truth of God, I'm not doing that. Are you kidding me? I was born in Kansas, grew up in Indiana, went to school in Missouri, lived in New England for 20 years. That right there will tell you, oh man, he lived out there. Listen to him. There's no doubt in my mind I'm distorting the truth of God. How could I not? How could we not? But we have to go into it knowing that. And so our anchor verse for this series, as we like go over the next four or five weeks, is this one verse I want to encourage everybody to just think about. Put into your heart. It's found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, another gospel, another story of Jesus. And Jesus says to a group of his disciples, all these people are saying all this interesting stuff about who Jesus is. Some are saying it's John the Baptist. He's John the Baptist. Come back. Some are saying he's Elijah. Some are saying this and some are saying that. And Jesus looks at all the disciples and he says this, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And that's what we're going to explore And that's the question I want to present to you, whether you're in the room, whether you're in the atrium, or whether you're tuning in online. Who do you say that Jesus is? I think that's a pressing question for all of us. Who do you say, and by extension, who do you say that God is? And in our everyday normal lives, the reality is people's facts about Jesus still create expectations for gardeners, expectations for God in ways that aren't really fully true. But that's just what we expect to see because it's what we've been told. This is what God is like. And and here's the thing. Some people will always take their facts about Jesus. We will all do this. And we will turn God into certain things. And that's what we're going to explore over the next four weeks. We're going to explore four pretty common metaphors, pretty common understandings of God, where they come from, why they're not all bad, but why they can be dangerous if we don't recognize it. So here's what they are. Do you want to know what they are? Okay, for the three of you that do. <laughs> All right, so here's what we're going to do, okay? I brought some props to help me with this, okay? So hang in there with me. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to seek to understand some four misunderstandings of God. And here's the first one. The first one is this, all right? Some people will take their facts about Jesus, and they'll turn Jesus into hippie Jesus. Right? Hippie Jesus. And I don't want you to miss this. So hippie Jesus wears tie-dye. Dennis Anderson gave me this shirt. It's a small That's probably it. <laughs> I guess Dennis gave me this to remind me I need to lose a little weight. <laughs> so, hippie Jesus, right? Y'all have met hippie Jesus in churches. You know what I'm saying, right? Get a little hippie Jesus going. All right. Hippie Jesus wears a bandana, of course. Wait a second. How's that? <laughs> I can't really see anything. <laughs> All I can feel is that this shirt is way too tight. Okay, so we got hippie Jesus here, right? Hippie Jesus is a common Jesus in our world. And hippie Jesus is just chill Jesus. 
Hippie Jesus just wants you to relax. It's all about love. God is love. You're love. I'm love. We're love. We can just relax. God's got it in control. God's in charge. Hippie Jesus sometimes sounds like this. Oh, there's a purpose for everything that God brings into your life. Just chill out. And hippie Jesus kind of just expects God to intervene at times. Hippie Jesus just wants to sit back and, and deal with the munchies, you know. And if you happen to be in Colorado, other things, you know, always just chill out. But the problem with hippie Jesus is if, if we're stuck on hippie Jesus, nothing ever gets done. <laughs> like if we're stuck in hippie Jesus and justice presses in, Poor stay poor. The sick stay sick. Right? I mean, that's what happens with hippie Jesus. Now, some people get stuck in hippie Jesus. Now, other people, they, they take Jesus and their facts about Jesus, and they turn it into FBI God. You all ever met FBI God? Okay. Here's FBI God. All right. Hold on. Okay. FBI God. Wait, wait, wait. FBI God looks like this. We've been watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We know everything you've done. That little webcam on your computer, we've been watching. Oh, yeah. The way you talk to your spouse, we've been watching. We've been taking notes. We know the law, and we know you broke it. So all these rules, all these regulations, and God's always watching. And so this idea of God, when somebody says, do you believe in God, or what's your idea of God? What happens to us, right? What do we do? We freak out. We start flushing CDs that we don't think God would like down the toilet. Get rid of it, man. They're coming. Right? I, like old, if you're my age, you like grew up with cops. Bad boys, bad boys. That's Jesus like showing up. Right? God busting in the door, you know. And all you know to do is throw away anything that doesn't have the word God in it. Right? Like, okay, where's my alcohol? We're running it down the toilet. Like, we don't know what to do. Where's the TV remote? God's coming. We don't want him to know we watch TV. You know, like, we don't know what to do with it. And we just sit, we picture God as this God who's got like listening in devices, you know, just parked outside. Just, we've been watching you. We've been building the case as to why you are not in. And we got a Bible verse for that. We got a Bible verse for all these. And it's not that there isn't some truth that God is aware of our lives and the things that we're doing, but it gets pressed to this first, and this is what we do. Now, so some people... Like, that's their idea. That's what they've grown up with. And some people, they reject that God. Another God that we love is CEO God. Any CEOs in the house? I'm just trying to offend everybody today. <laughs> just want to make sure we're equally offended, right? This is CEO God, you know what I'm saying? Like, dressed to impress. Got my bow tie. I bet you don't think I can tie this. Oh, yeah? Not only can I tie it, I can tie it right without a mirror. No, I can't. I don't know what I'm doing. I do know, but I can't do it without a mirror. But we have, we have like, CEO Jesus. And CEO Jesus, like, makes a lot of sense to some of us. Like, CEO Jesus makes a lot of sense to me. Because CEO Jesus has stuff for you to do. Like, we got a bottom line to fulfill. You know what I'm saying? Like, quarterly goals. <laughs> Where's your quarterly plan? Like, don't you know you were created from the foundation of the world to get stuff done? Like, God has a plan. It doesn't happen without you. The field is ready. The harvest is ready. People are dying on the vines. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you in the game. Here's the plan. We need you to do this. We need you to do that. And, and here's the thing. I got a big bonus for you at the end of the day. More jewels in your crown. And so we present this idea of, like, CEO Jesus. 
who always has something for you. And the problem with CEOs is it's exhausting. Like there's no vacation time. It's just all overtime. Now, there's one other one. And this is a fan favorite, right? Here's the fan favorite. This is, a, this is one that is truly taken over. And this is, this is a really good one. It's Pizza Delivery Jesus. Y'all ever met Pizza Delivery Jesus? <laughs> pizza Delivery Jesus is my favorite. Pizza Delivery Jesus just shows up to your door with hot, fresh pizzas anytime you want. All you got to do is uh, just call up. I would like pepperoni. I'd like Hawaiian. Uh, I'd like a barbecue chicken. And Jesus would be like, ding, here you go. This is what you want. Ask anything in my name, and it's yours. I got the Bible verse for it. So pizza, just God wants you blessed. God wants to give you everything. God, just, just all you got to do is sing the right songs, say the right prayers, and I just show up. And if it's not there in 30 minutes or less, it's your fault. <laughs> That's the one difference about the pizza delivery God versus like delivery God. Like it's never God's fault. It's your fault. Like there's some deep, dark sin in your life, and that's why your pizza's cold and half-eaten. <laughs> right? So now here's the thing, right? Then, then you, you, you take all of this together, right? Let's get my hippie glasses on, okay? Right? <laughs> okay, now these are compounding gods, okay? <laughs> that's for the CEOs of you, the finance people. Like. <laughs> so when somebody says to you, do you believe in God, right? <laughs> Which one? Which one? Like, this is a complex reality. Or people say, this is my favorite piece. Oh, I'm an atheist. I go, really? Tell me about the God you don't believe in, because there's a really good chance that I don't believe in that one either. <laughs> you know, I've never actually met a person who says, I don't believe in God, and when I ask him that question, we just have a real honest conversation that I actually don't agree with them and say, no, I'm with you totally. Because that idea of God, I don't believe in either. I think that's one that we just have kind of morphed and transitioned. And it usually goes back to one of these experiences that can actually be very traumatic. So what do we do? What do we do when we're faced with pizza delivery God? What do we do when we're faced with the idea of is God like a hippie? What do we do is God like a CEO? What do we do with all of that? I'm going to take this shirt off here for you just so you can focus on my eyes. <laughs> right? What do we do with all of that? Well, here's what I would suggest. I would suggest, I'm going to take off the Chippendale bow tie too. I know what some of you were thinking. <laughs> right? What do we do? Here's what I would encourage us to do. We just wait at the tomb and listen for Jesus to say your name. And by that I mean, at some point, this God, this idea of God has to move beyond what somebody tells you the Bible says. It has to move beyond what someone well, very well-meaning, like myself, with the word reverend in front of their name, which I actually do have that, I promise. And just wait for Jesus. Because there's something about experiencing Jesus' name. Jesus, say your name. Experiencing that personal reality of God that everything else falls into place. And as you're waiting to hear your name, as you're engaging in the, the hard work of spiritual soul care, as you're listening, I just would encourage you to remember the metaphor that Jesus used. Remember the metaphor that was given by Jesus at the resurrection. In John chapter 20, Jesus gives us this beautiful metaphor. And all, by the way, all these are metaphors. Every time we talk about God, it's a metaphor. How do we fully understand this God that is so infinite? But but Jesus, I think, gives us the fundamental foundational metaphor in its perfect form, in its perfect sense, when he's talking to Mary. 
He says, now go tell my brothers. Go see them and go tell them. I'm going to my father and your father. My God and your God. See, this is the metaphor that Jesus chooses after his resurrection. This idea of father. And I think if we hold on to that in its perfect form, as one that protects and provides and loves and cares and holds and sustains. Not our earthly image of father that can be so problematic. I know, I'm a dad. <laughs> like, I, I don't want my kids to think about God as me <laughs> and the way I father. But in this perfect sense of a perfect parent whose love is perfect. Like, Jesus could have said, I'm going to my judge and your judge, to my God and your God. It's not what he says, though. He, he could have said that. He says, I'm going to my father and your father, this beautiful, wonderful thing that we hold as parent. And here's the thing, you'll hear me say this, and I don't want anybody to freak out, but listen, if you had a bad experience with a father and that's really difficult for you, but you had a wonderful experience with a mother growing up, then just change the metaphor. I'm going to my mother and your mother. Because both are equally in, like insufficient to describe God, whether you say father or mother. I had a great experience with a father. Father makes sense to me. I don't have any baggage with that word. But I think God is bigger than the word. And so if you're here today and that idea of father just leaves you with a sense of abandonment or abuse or frustration, you just can't move beyond that. And that's blocking you from experiencing the truth of love and the parent that holds you, then just substitute the word mother. It's okay. But that's the foundational like understanding that we have to walk through with this. And I like to ask this question of every talk that I put together, is how does this make a better me, and how does this make a better world? If I actually pause and recognize that there's all these different versions of God that float around there within Christianity, by the way, then we could take other religions and add to it. But if we'll, if we'll pause and say, okay, like, if God is Father and Jesus is living, and, and I get it that facts always are out there, here's how this works. I believe that when the facts of Jesus like the historical Jesus, behind the text in the Gospels, the real Jesus, the real message, when we know that, when we live in that, when we understand that, and we see how the Gospel writers shape that person, when that meets the truth of Jesus, which is the Gospel, right? So the facts of Jesus are this historical Jesus that walked around on this earth, the, the things that we will never fully know, but we can make our best guess. But when it meets the truth of Jesus, that Jesus is living, that's a great, we fall into this mystery of love. And we start to recognize and realize that's God. And love exposes a, a couple of things. It exposes the tyranny of doing and the joy of being. And that's what will change the world. When I fully live into this mystery of love, now I can find there's so much freedom in just being. I don't have to do all this doing stuff. That I'm first and foremost a child of God. That's a sense of being and belonging. And everything flows out of that. Every image, every understanding of God has to flow from that space. Here's what's so powerful about this mystery of love. The mystery of love becomes bigger and better as you get closer and closer to God. As you get closer and closer to God, you realize that God is so, so much bigger, so much better, and so much so more mysterious, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. The best way I can give you to describe this, and I have to go real quick here because there's a bunch of people coming in in a minute, and they want your seats, and you need to get your germs out of here, okay? So... <laughs> So stick with me on this really quickly. Think about the, the Milky Way. This is a picture of the Milky Way. And imagine if I told you there's the earth, right? There's the earth. How, you're very far away from it, right? There's the earth. 
You go, wow, it's like a speck amongst a bunch of specks. You would describe it in certain ways. We'd say, oh, the earth is kind of like a little dot, and it glows, like so many other things. Yeah, it's just, just universe dust. But then if you were to zoom in and get a little closer, this is what you'd see of the earth. And you say, oh, this is the earth. You say, oh, look at it. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's round, right? And it's got these different colors, and it's kind of like a big marble, and you would describe it in such a way, and you're getting a little bit closer, and you're like, oh, wow, that's, that's different than I thought. Then if you zoomed in and got even closer, it's actually obscuring the whole, right? It's actually obscuring the whole, the, the fullness of it, but you're getting closer and closer to the mystery. And you say, well, describe the earth. You can say, well, it's just a bunch of water. If I got close enough and this is all I could see, I said, oh, it's just a big bunch of water. This is the earth. I could say this is the earth. But here's the thing. If I happen to zoom in and stand on a different spot, I would say, oh, it's just these mountains and it's just snow everywhere. This is the earth. This is how I would describe it. This is the earth. But if I zoomed even further, if I, went to, if I went under the ocean, into the deepest parts of the ocean, I'd see this thing crawling around. I'd be like, this is the earth, and these are the earthlings. <laughs> this is what they look like. This is how they function. But if I start with the big picture, the big idea, as I zoom in and if I hold that, if I hold that mystery, as I zoom in and in closer, even though it's actually obscured, the mystery becomes bigger and bigger. Because now I look at this thing at the bottom of the ocean, and go, man, the earth is bigger than I thought. Look what's in the earth. I couldn't see that from up there, but I like, it's there. And as I stand on the mountains, I go, oh my gosh, it's bigger than I thought. Not only are there like little creatures in the sea that are kind of like some type of earthling, but then, then there's these big mountains. But it's not just the mountains, it's the ocean as well. But I could get caught up in saying the earth is just a big bowl of water if that's all I saw. But if I hold the mystery that there's more to it, I get, and then I zoom back out and go, man, it's just bigger than I thought. It's bigger than I thought. It's bigger than I thought. As you zoom in and out. And so when we hold the mystery, the closer and closer you get to God, we have to hang on to and hold to. There's always so much more that we're not experiencing. It's bigger than I thought. And that's what keeps us healthy. And so as we kind of finish up today, here's my question. If you're new, I ask this question every week. I'm like a broken record. What is God inviting you into? What is this great big mystery of love speaking into your own personal heart today? What are you sensing? What are you hearing? I, I would hope that if you're here and you're in a space of disconnectedness spiritually, you're in a space of disenfranchisement, you have felt rejected by God through God's people, and you've said there's no space for me, because of one of these images or an image associated. Or maybe you're just dissatisfied, like you just kind of walked away and you're here to make mom happy. <laughs> you're here to make dad happy. But that kind of resonated with you. I would maybe hope that God's inviting you to just stick it out the next four weeks as we explore these metaphors. And maybe you'll be introduced to a God that's bigger and better than you could have ever imagined. And maybe you're here today and you're like me. And, and you have come to a space where you know it all because you've read it all. You've read the Bible numerous times, cover to cover, because that's what somebody told us we had to do. You've got to read the Bible from start to finish because somehow it's in order, which it's not. <laughs> but I just got to read the Bible in a year, get it all done. And you've done that over and over again. And you go, I got it. And maybe you're like me and you've lost the mystery. And you need a salvation from that knowledge so that you can have faith. 
so that you can believe in something bigger. I would encourage you to ask this question, maybe throughout this week, like what metaphor am I clinging to? What am I saying? This is God, and I'm, I'm being blinded, and I'm missing that there's an ocean, and there's mountains, and there's squid, and there's all these other ways in which we experience what is so much bigger than we could ever imagine. That's the invitation today. So we have this song for you. Just encourage you to consider that. And just listen to the whisper of this living Jesus through the power of the Spirit. What is God inviting you into today? And I'll be back in just a minute.